Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of April 8th through the 10th, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. For me personally, uh, things are finally setting into a bit of a rhythm with the new place and all, especially with the Oscars being done uh, and freeing up a lot of time for me. Um, I was able to catch everything everywhere all at once this past weekend in theaters, uh, which, by God, it definitely lives up to the hype. Definitely recommend you go see it in theaters if you haven't. It definitely deserves the big screen. Um, I'll be giving a review, as always, later in what I've been watching. Uh, But, of course, before that, we have to get through the box office numbers and news. So let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Uh, in first place this weekend, we have Sonic the Hedgehog 2 by a considerable margin. Uh, the sequel to the Paramount 2020 film, one of the last films before the, the pandemic started, uh, opened to 72.1 million in 4,235 theaters for a massive $17,030 per theater average. This beats out the box office pros forecast of $65 million. Um, combined with the $70 million uh, international um, total to date, uh, Sonic sits at 142 Point one million worldwide. Uh, this is low-key a huge success for Paramount for a number of reasons. First, it's taken the record for the big for the highest-grossing opening uh, video game adaptation away from Sonic the Hedgehog one. Uh, so you know, kind of rewarding itself, um, kind of like Star Wars and Marvel does with themselves anyway for a top box office. And anyway, uh, further, the seventy-one million dollars also makes it Jim Carrey's biggest opener ever, uh, beating out his two thousand three film Bruce Almighty, which opened to sixty-seven point nine. Million, and then even further, it's the biggest non-comic book opening post-pandemic to date. Um, the next closest being, I believe, F Nine with seventy million dollars opening, and then No Time to Die at fifty-five million. Um, and this is all, of course, domestic. Heck, you know, it even beat out some comic book films. Obviously, Morbius, uh, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, later, um, which opened to 30, 39 million last weekend, um, and then Eternals opened to only seventy-one million against Sonic the Hedgehog 2's seventy-two million. What's more, you know, this is the biggest opening for a non-Disney, non-animated, PG-rated film since Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince all the way back in 2009, which opened to $77.8 million. I think really, though, the most impressive thing is I think this is indicative of kind of like a new era for Paramount Pictures after kind of going under the radar the last few years, you know. Uh, This is Paramount's biggest opening domestically since Transformers Age of Extinction back in 2014, so nearly eight years. Um, That one opened about $100 million and went on to make a billion worldwide, but since then, the only real notable... uh, openers for um, Paramount has been the Mission Impossible series, which, you know, Fallout back in 2018 opened only as high as $61 million, and then The Quiet Place 2 was a modest success, you know, mostly due to having lower budgets. But other than that, Paramount has kind of been a joke among the major studios lately, Um, you know, kind of like the the least of them, so to speak. So a big win here for Sonic, a big win here for uh, Paramount. you know, which as well as their successes with The Lost City, Scream, and Jackass Forever this year, um, and their modest budgets, you know, it's doing a lot better than last year with Snake Eyes and uh, Clifford, you know, as well as, you know, Terminator Dark Fate and Wonder Park and Gemini Man back in 2019. Um, and of course, you know, with the decline of the, the Transformers franchise, you know they're definitely looking for the next big franchise. Um, and to think this was all could have been not have happened if they hadn't decided to uh, not uh, redesign after the terror initial release of the first trailer. Um, You can't kind of help but feel good about the whole thing. 
Now, while this is not the critics' choice, you know, 67% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, audiences responded to it well with a 97% um, compared to the 63% and 93% of the initial film. So actually an improvement on both regards. Um, the biggest complaint I've seen on social media has been maybe it's a little bit longer by about half an hour to 20 minutes or so um, than it needed to be. Um, Cinema score has it at an A, which, you know, again, indicates good word of mouth. Now, I think part of what made Sonic this past weekend such a success was that, you know, it definitely is a good kids film, right? It's definitely appeals for the for the youngins, um, which, you know, I, I think the last one really was, must have been like Sing 2, I guess, or maybe I'm missing one in between, you know, early, from earlier this year, um, but none that really stand out. So, you know, this is definitely long overdue. Um, but also in addition to the kids, it's not just only the kids. I think, you know, the general audience uh, of, you know, especially the early 30, you know, the 18 to 30 year old reigns millennial, um, especially guys, um, definitely came out in force, right? Um, Deadline had a demographics at 61% guys and 46 between the ages of 18 and 34 um, and 32% under 17. Um, overall, the breakout was about 27% parents, 31% kids, but then 42% general audience without kids. So, you know, being able to hit all of those quadrants, I think, makes Makes this a true blockbuster that just has that wide appeal, um, and you know should do well, should do well for its legs over the long run. Now, speaking of, the first Sonic came out Valentine's Day 2020, about a month before the pandemic really hit, um, opening to 58 million and lighting it out to 1.46 million domestic, so about a 2.5x multiplier, though because of the pandemic, its run was cut short at week six. Um, now, that doesn't matter really too much, you know, Detective Pikachu, uh, kind of like the prior uh, most, most highest grossing video game adaptation film, you know, made about 97% of its total gross domestically um, by week six or so. Um, out of you know 14 weeks so you know maybe call a 2.5 multiplier up to maybe 2.6 if it had a full run um previously which you know is, is pretty standard for like a, a pretty decent film um and it really worked on the strength of having a pretty above expected um opening number for its success um a 2.6 multiplier for sonic 2 with their numbers would put it at 187 million domestically pretty conservative um it could pro probably go up to even 3x potentially with the good word of mouth um now a 47.9 percent domestic sale from the last when applied to this film, uh, puts it at about 390 million worldwide. And I think that's where, you know, films like Mission Impossible, um, you know, even if they didn't do as well domestically, was able to still actually gross even more just because of, you know, the strong international appeal, which I don't think Sonic might have as much of. Um, still, you know, 390 million worldwide against a reported 90 to 110 million dollar production budget could be a massive success and a good indicator. I think we should see a Sonic 3 at some point down the line. Um, you know, I could even see this, you know, really... I think the stretch goal would be maybe 200 million domestic and 400 million worldwide. Um, though, again, with some family-friendly competition from DreamWorks, the bad guys in a couple of weeks, um, and then Doctor Strange at the beginning of May, I think that's not, that might be a bit of a, too much to expect. Still, I think this is a good job for Paramount overall. Um, we'll see if they can continue the streak with a good success for Top Gun Maverick uh, over Memorial Day weekend. Um, I'll be curious to also see what this success of like this kind of like live action animated film of a video game adaptation means for the Chris Pratt movie coming out in December, as well as for you know Minions and Lightyear later this summer. After all, you know, I think this is also low-key indicative of the box office where, you know, we talked about how there was a lot of kids and families coming out here. Kids and families were one of the uh, markets that was, like, I think the least likely to come back to theaters, you know, in the very initial wave post-pandemic. You know, it was mostly, like, the older male audience coming out, which, you know, definitely sort of period, like I mentioned. But, you know, the fact that, you know, Encanto maybe didn't do as well, you know, uh, in theaters, um, you know, obviously because it was also coming to, to Disney+, Plus, though this one will eventually come to Paramount+. Plus, But um, Encanto didn't do as well in theaters. 
theaters, but you know, kind of blew up later because families didn't want to risk their kids. You know, uh, I think like with COVID, you know, not necessarily over. You know, there still is that new variant lurking around, but you know, COVID and and normal life mostly return at this point. I think the fact that families and kids are going out to theaters for Sonic means I think that Minions and Lightyear later this year are going to be pretty huge at this point. Oh, okay. So moving on to second place uh, is now if, if for this week is last week's number one film, Morbius. So unlike Sonic, this one isn't much cause for celebration for Sony at this point. Uh, Morbius dropped a staggering seventy four percent to ten point two million in four thousand two hundred and sixty eight theaters, a per theater average of two thousand three hundred and ninety dollars, running domestic total of fifty seven million. Uh, globally, it dropped about sixty two percent in similar markets, to end up with a running total of sixty nine million. Nice abroad. Uh, uh, putting at 126 million worldwide. Uh, now, looking at second weekend drops, now Morbius just to not you know, just to get straight to it, it's the worst of any film uh, featuring a Marvel character. You know, uh, either be it Sony produced or Fox produced or MCU produced. Um, Black Widow, you know, the one that had all the hullabaloo last year about you know premiere access and whatnot, dropped. You know, of, of the steepest of the MCU, 67%, but still, that's like, you know, nearly 10% not as bad as this one. Um, below Black Widow, you do have films, the, the glorious comic book films like the Fantastic Four movie at 68%, uh, Electra at 69%, the 2003 Ang Lee film starring Eric Bana, not the MCU one with Edward Norton, uh, dropping to a 69.7%, um, and then X Men Dark Phoenix, which previously was the worst dropping uh, second weekend for a Marvel film had a 71.5% drop. This is just worse than that. Um, you know, it was only spared the indignity of not being the worst DC or Marvel comic book hero film. Um, you know, because uh, there was a little film known as the 1997 film Steel starring the one and only Shaquille O'Neal which had a massive 78% drop back then. Um, but even then, right, like Morbius had a worse second weekend drop than Batman versus Superman which dropped 69. One percent, or the James Gunn Suicide Squad, which was hampered by you know the HBO Max day and date, as well as poor marketing, um, at a seventy-one point five percent last year. Now, all that being said, Morbius still did have a decent enough opening, right? $39 million, like we had mentioned last week. Um, that between the international numbers, the streaming deals with Disney and plus and Netflix, and the relatively low $75 million production budget, I think they'll at least break even on this one. Um, that said, I think it's not going to hit $200 million worldwide and probably maybe $175 million or so, which is, again, pretty much break even, but I wouldn't hold my breath for a standalone sequel. I think at most, Morbius will probably show up in like a, a Sinister Six movie, you know, combining Venom and I think they're making a Craven the Hunter film or whatever. And I think, you know, they're also working, the same directors or writers, I think, are also working on a Madam Web film uh, for Sony as well. But yeah, Morbius, I don't think it's going to be a standalone killer. I think it's going to be a supporting character at most. Um, domestically, I think it'll struggle to get to 2x million, which I think would put it at about the $80 million or so range domestically. Uh, moving to third place, we go back to Paramount with uh, the lost, um, you know, the the lost city um, bounced back from its steeper drop last weekend to thirty nine percent down this weekend for nine million dollar total in three thousand seven hundred ninety seven theaters, two thousand three hundred seventy eight per theater average in weekend three, running total of sixty eight million dollars. Um, has not really rolled out internationally um, yet, so that puts its worldwide total at just over sixty nine million worldwide. Nice. Um, fourth place is a new opener from Universal. The 
Michael Bay-directed Jake Gyllenhaal-led heist film Ambulance. Um, this one opened to a disappointing $8.7 million in 3,412 theaters per theater average of 2,550, below the $11.4 million forecast by box office pros. Um, overseas, it did do pre- a lot a bit better, making $22.4 million from a worldwide total of about $30 million so far, but that was in 68 markets, which, while not all of them out there, is still a majority. Um, I think the issue with Ambulance is its marketing and its audience issue more than anything else. Uh, review 1, frankly, you know, it doesn't seem that it was much worse than Sonic. You know, it had a 67% critics on Rotten Tomatoes, um, a bit lower, to, uh, which is the same as what Sonic had. Um, and then it had a bit lower, but still pretty decent 88% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes against Sonic's 97%. And, you know, it had an A- minus cinema score against Sonic's A. Um, I think the, and the anecdotal reviews I've seen from people who have actually seen it is that it's probably Michael Bay at his best. The actors and action weren't that bad, um, but it's you know kind of like just a, a just a film that was there, right? I think though, whereas Sonic is you know based on a franchise we have a lot of attachment to, especially for those of who grew up with him. This one is based on a small indie Danish film with the same name and concept that no one really saw. Um, and what more, you know, would audience for Sonic? Could, well, Sonic could pull in an audience of both adult and children and families. Um, you know, Ambulance definitely screwed older with its. Our rating, um, you know, 77% over 25, 49% over 35, and decidedly male. Um, probably not too unexpected, right? Again, we talked about, we mentioned earlier, you know, films like those from with, from Liam Neeson and Open Road have been doing okay at the box office. So this would kind of be in that vein. Um, but again, you know, at the same point, at adult-oriented drama and action films have not really taken off in the way that you know studios probably would have wanted them to. Now, reportedly, had a budget of about forty million dollars or so, which I think it'll struggle to break even, frankly speaking, even with international numbers. Domestically, I think it maybe get to twenty million all told, with somewhat decent word of mouth, but. Other than that, I think the only way this is going to be profitable for the studio is if it has. It's definitely the kind of film that has a life on streaming services, or you know, if you're in a mo- in a hotel on a vacation or something, you're just flipping through the channels after your day out. You just want to like have something on in the background. And I think this would be one of those kind of films as well. So, um, you know, definitely I think can make money for the studio, and not be a total loss. But um, box office wise, I don't think this is it. Uh, rounding out the top five, we have The Batman uh, from Warner Brothers in week six, making $6.4 million in 3,254 theaters per theater average of 1985. Uh, domestic running total is $358.9 million. Worldwide total is $736 million. Um, now, it is confirmed that it's coming to HBO Max later this week, I believe. Um, so I think the $400 million eight, domestic $800 million worldwide dream uh, is pretty dead at this point, but still solid performance nonetheless and looking forward to the inevitable sequel for this one. Now, outside the top five, we have the aforementioned film I watched, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, from A24. It had its wide expansion from 38 theaters in second weekend last week, to up to 12.50 across the country uh, in its third weekend. Now, it may not have the highest per theater average anymore, like it did in the past couple of weeks, but that good word of mouth, uh, I think, translated to a very respectable $6 million in theaters for a per theater average of 4,847, just under 8.5 million running today date. 
Now, I think what will really carry this film, again, is that excellent word of mouth. Uh, it still is Leatherbox's highest-rated feature film of all time, sitting at 4.6, just above Parasite. Um, and it has a 97% critics, 94% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which, even though you know the, the, the critics and audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is just a percentage of how many people gave it a positive rating, um, they still also do take an out of 10 rating from critics. And this one is at 8.8 out of 10, which is tied for the highest-rated film of the decade against which is only tied with the Best Picture nom- uh, winner, Nomadland. Um, so, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once is definitely kind of like a zeitgeisty film. Um, you know, I think uh, it's... It, it's all, it, Now, A24 is not the biggest distributor around, right? Their highest grossing film to date is Uncut Gems from a couple years ago, made $50 million. Um, and their highest uh, opening weekend of all date time is Hereditary at $13 million. Now, Everything Everywhere All at Once is their most expensive film to date, I believe, costing them $25 million, though uh, I think that's probably due to the VFX work and maybe the budgets of some of the bigger name talent like Marcel Yeoh. Um, but this one was also co-produced by the Russell Brothers of Avengers fame. Um, the next highest budget film I could find from A24 was the 2014 film starring Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain, A Most Violent Year, which cost $20 million but only made $12 million worldwide. Um, so it was not a financial success, despite being a critical darling. Um, most other films from A24 are in the single-digit single million-dollar range, you know, um, one to two million, maybe four million, a couple of th- 10 to 13 million, so this Ex Machina or The Disaster Artist. Um, that said, again, this good word of mouth, I think, should be at play here, boosting the multiplier this weekend. Um Right and you know, Uncut Gems had a 5.22x multiplier in the holiday season. Uh, X Machina had 4.76x with a similar release window, and Midsommar had 4.18x uh, and Hereditary at 3.25x. Both of those last two releasing in summer. Uh, the director duo, um, The Daniels, a previous film with A24, uh, the farting Daniel Radcliffe corpse film Swiss Army Man, managed a 2.98x multiplier. So I would say 3x is probably the floor, um, and I could see this going as high as 5x. Um, so, you know, a, a, a 5x multiplier would put everything, everything everywhere all at once at about uh, 42-ish million or so, which would be um, right up there with their highest grossing films. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, adding on that they are selling probably going to be selling off the international rights as well as uh, streaming uh, distribution as well. I think it's probably going to be profitable even if we don't see that reflected necessarily in the box office numbers. Now, I think where the real potential comes in is whether it manages to get nominated for some Oscars come award season. Not a certain thing by any means. Uh, A24 have not had the best luck in recent years outside of Minari and Moonlight. I still stand that uh, um, The Farewell should have been nominated for at least a couple of things uh, in the year it came out. Um, which also has a lot of like I guess like uh, thematic resonance with everything everywhere all at once um, and furthermore of spring release date I haven't known the exact numbers but um, it's pretty hard to get Oscar buzz in when you release in spring um, unless your name is Jordan Peele with Get Out but you never know stranger things have happened this kind of does have that same critical and kind of like I feel maybe this is the bubble I'm living in, but it does feel like it might potentially break out in the same way Get Out did. So who knows? Maybe come you know a, year, a little less, a little less than a year from now, we'll be talking about everything where everywhere all at once. In terms of award season, um, those films that released, you know, Moonlight, Lady Bird, that had that had some awards, but had an an 11x multiplier. Though again, those also had much smaller releases, um, and again, released during award season as well. 
Um, overall, you know, outside of that, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero pushed to about $33 million domestically in this fourth weekend. Uh, RRR from India made it up to $13 million here in the States. Uh, meanwhile, a bunch of films closed their runs, especially post-Oscars. Um, West Side Story threw in the towel $38.5 million after 17 weeks. A global total of $75 million. Um, not an Oscar nominee, but uh, Jackass Forever at, made $57.7 million here in eight weeks. Also a $75 million domestic total, a worldwide total. Which is about a tenth, on, which is on about a tenth of the budget as Steven Spielberg, um, and then Dune ends its twenty-four week Oscar run um, at about a hundred and eight million dollars uh, lifetime domestically. Uh, overall total box office for this weekend uh, ended up at $119 million. That's actually not bad compared to 2019 when Sazam opened on the equivalent weekend to $53 million, which is admi- admittedly less than Sonic opened to, uh, and total box office was about $145 million. Um, this coming weekend, we have Sony Priest releasing uh, based on a real-life story uh, f- called Father Stew about a boxer turned priest starring Mark Wahlberg. Um, box office post has it opening to a modest to $7 million in 2,500 theaters. Um, the big one to keep an eye on will be Fantastic Beats, The Secret of Dumbledore from Warner Brothers as part of their much maligned Wizarding World franchise. Will it continue? Will it buck the trend? Or will it continue the decline of the franchise? Um, that one is forecast to open between 48 and $58 million from box office pros in 4,100 theaters. Speaking of Fantastic Beasts, uh, so far it has opened in 22 markets overseas to $55.8 million, um, number one in Germany, Japan, UK, and Australia, Germany making $9.4 million, Japan $8.6 million, and the UK $8 million. Um, China we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, notably in the UK, that opening is about one-third that of the original of the first uh, Fantastic Beasts film, and about half of that of the second, uh, which shows a continual descent of the film. Other markets have at about 20 percent or so dropped overall against the second film. Uh, the overall budget for the film is about $200 million, reportedly, and while allegedly it's better than the second one, it still is a bit messed critically. Um, it, and, uh, and, you know, it's still, it'll still have to pay for the sins of its forebearers. Still, these numbers aren't all bad, and I could see it as an early indication, barring a total collapse of the domestic market, that I think Warner will probably have enough of an excuse to try to at least finish out the five films they have licensed to complete uh, in its in this universe. Um, a, a 20% worldwide drop uh, for um, this film against the uh, against the uh, same the total that um, Crimes of, of Crimes of Grindelwald made would put it at uh, Secret of Dumbledore about 520 million dollars worldwide. Um, though China uh, has some issues there, which again we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, speaking of the UK, though, Batman cleared 38.6 million pounds to be the fourth highest DC Comics film there, ahead of Batman vs. Superman, but behind uh, The Dark Knight, Joker, and Dark Knight Rises, uh, which are all about 10 million pounds ahead of the Batman, uh, so unlikely it'll, cross, it'll beat those out in, by the end of its run. Uh, for other movies, Sing 2 has crossed the $400 million mark worldwide, puts it at the 10th highest grossing film from 2021 ahead of Dune and The Eternals. It also continues Illumination's streak of all their films making at least $400 million worldwide, which has continued on since The Lorax in 2012 made only $350 million. All of their films since then has hit, have made at least $400 million worldwide, which is definitely uh, consistent at the very least for Illumination. 
Um, the bad guys, you know, which we also mentioned earlier from DreamWorks, is coming up to about $40.3 million in 43 markets ahead of its US release, about a 40% drop versus last weekend in the same countries. Uh, and then the Indian movie RRR, which he mentioned, hit 100 million core, 1,000 core, or about $132 million, um, which puts it at the number three Indian film all time globally. Uh, moving to China, again, things are pretty grim over there with the lockdowns in place in Shanghai. Uh, about and about 57, 54% of theaters closed world, uh, countrywide, uh, which if you've seen the, the kind of disturbing footage on some place and reports on social media, things are pretty dark over there. Here's to hoping things get better uh, there and very soon for the citizens' sake at least. Uh, box office-wise, though, first place went to Secrets of Dumbledore with $9.7 million uh, in its debut alongside uh, the other countries we mentioned before, which actually makes it the market with the highest gross uh, thus far. Um, it does have the lowest scores on Duban compared to others in the franchise. The first Fantastic Beasts film had a 7.7. The second one, Crimes of Grindelwald, had a 7.0. This one sits at a 6.7 right now. Um, notably, also, Warner Brothers did have an edit that cut out dialogue about Dumbledore's gay relationship. Uh, which kind of shows what they're willing to do for this market and how important uh, China is for the wizarding world. Um, second place in China went to Hotel Transylvania 4, 1.4 million for the weekend, 6.2 million to date. Um, Escape Room 2 is in third place, adding about uh, $940,000 for 5.2 million uh, to date. Um, fourth place went to Moonfall, making 900000 this weekend and $19.4 million to date. Um, and then rounding out the top five uh, is uh, Man on the Edge from Hong Kong, uh, $645,000 for the weekend, $3.9 million to date. The Batman sits at number six, uh, currently sitting at $21.8 million across the country. So yeah, about that $20, $25 million range we had forecasted um, at the beginning of its run. Um, back state, uh, back state side, you know, last week we, uh, mentioned that Doctor Strange 2, um, tickets went on sale on various platforms, causing, you know, AMC theaters and Fandango and such to crash. Uh, initial numbers suggest about $15 million in the first 24 hours, um, which would be the second best non-Avengers Marvel pre-sale numbers with Spider-Man No Way Home, of course, uh, in first place for that record at $42 million. Um, for comparison, the Batman pre-sales for this year were about $8 million in the same time period, and Fandango did mention that uh, Doctor Strange 2 uh, did beat out Batman for their uh, most pre-sales, uh, first-day pre-sales for 2022 so far. Uh, with that in mind, some are forecasting as high as a $200 million opening, though some are a little bit more conservative, $170 million to $190 million. Still, that would be the biggest opening of this year. Um, obviously, we're like three weeks out and a lot could change uh, before the actual debut, but still a promising to kick things off for Marvel. Uh, something else kicking off this week is as of Monday, uh, Warner Brothers is now known as Warner Brothers Discovery as uh, the $43 billion acquisition of Warner Brothers by Discovery led by David Zaslav finally closed. Following up various exits last week with, uh, with Jason Keelar, Zaslav has his leadership in place for post-merger. Uh, JB Perret is running streaming business. Bruce Campbell takes on chief revenue and strategy officer. Kathleen Flint leads cable operations as chairman's chief content officer of the U.S. Networks Group. Chris Lick, chairman and CEO of CNN, Casey, and meanwhile, retaining, uh, being retained from the Keeler era, uh, Casey Blores as uh, HBO head of HBO programming chief, uh, Channing Dungy and Tommy Emmerich as Warner Brothers studio chiefs. Um, the strategy, I think, seems to be that Zaslav's team will lead the operational side of things, while Warner execs provide more creative ideas uh, given their experience. 
Uh, speaking of mergers, one of the subsidiaries which kind of lost their place in the Disney Fox merger a few years back was Blue Sky Studio, which I believe is actually no longer functional. Um, while the closure was announced a while back, one of the projects that ended up in limbo as a result was Nimona, um, a LGBTQ plus friendly uh, graphic novel that adaptation by the C. Rob producer Andy Stevenson. Uh, it looks like Netflix has stepped in to rescue the project, though uh, announcing they had picked it up uh, and provided a couple of names for their voice cast. Uh, notably, it looks like a lot of the same Blue Sky talent moved over to work on the project, though it seems they had to restart production from scratch since I believe the 75% complete assets Disney likely had could not be ported over. Um, but still great to see you know Netflix coming in and rescuing these kind of projects, um, especially you know when studios go under and they don't have a place to go. Um, speaking of projects that uh, you would expect to have a home, but I guess A24 finds a way. Um, we are finally on to what I've been watching. And as I mentioned, I saw everything everywhere all at once. Um, so, you know, I will say, if I, in a word, I will say this film is very heartfelt, right? And I think that's like a really good sign for a film. Um, even the film isn't executed properly, I think if you can tell there's a heart and passion behind the film, um, that, that can carry through, right? And that can make a film enjoyable, even if it's not the most technically competent out there. Um, I was talking to my friend AJ after I had seen the film. Um, shout out to you, AJ, if you're listening. Um, and, you know, he said this is probably one of his, his most favorite films out there. Um, I would say, for me, I think talking to him, I realized, you know, I don't think everything everywhere all at once is as tightly constructed a film as some others I've seen recently, especially from the Oscars, right? Um, Drive My Car, Power of the Dog, uh, Worst Person in the World, right? These uh, in Parasite, of course, these films are super highly constructed, super intricate, super, you know, just very tight, right? Um, and I think this one... It's not that it's, it's, it's willy-nilly all over the place, though you could argue it is based on how I describe it. But I don't think it has that same level of polish, perhaps, that like some of these other films uh, might have, um, which makes sense, I guess, you know, given that, uh, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once is very much a, 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 an indie project. Um, and, and frankly, the fact that they could get these visual effects and editing done with a very scrappy team. Right? Apparently, I saw a, a, a video saying that they only had five visual effects artists on this project with 500 visual effects shots over the course course, which they were all doing from home over the pandemic in their bedrooms. Um, so, you know, that's pretty impressive, right? So, you know, and I, I think like script rise, right? I think it pack, tries to pack a lot into here, which maybe it could not, it maybe wasn't as clear, as clean unless you had some, I could see someone who didn't get some of the uh, the cultural, I mean, not even cultural references, come with like the, the emotional beats. You know, if you haven't experienced some of these things yourselves, you might not get it as much or it might take you longer to get into it, which on top of like the crazy world building and the crazy um, multiverse jumping stuff and the accent and all the colorfulness and the zaniness that the Daniels are known for, it could be a lot, right? Um, and, you know, maybe the fact that I had seen all these reviews ahead of time and kind of went in with higher expectations made me you know, a little bit more critical of it and it ended up not not being that. I still think, again, the fact that this film is heartfelt and you could tell it's coming from a place of sincerity really carries it a lot for me. Um, and that, I think, is, again, carried by the actors. And the trio of the main family, right, Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn Wong, Kei Hui Kwan returning from his days at Sword Round and data from the Goonies after like 20, 40, 20 plus year absence from acting, coming back as Waymond Wrong in like three different types of roles. And then Stephanie Sue, you know, coming in as the, as their queer daughter, Joy, um, you know, plus, you know, the, inim the inimitable uh, James Hong, always ever present. Um, I mean, you know, they did a lot to, to act very well, right? And, you know, 
maybe again I'm biased, right? I, this this definitely was a lot of my circles because of the Asian American element of it. But I think that is you know part of why why I related to it at the very least, and a lot of people I know. But I know people who aren't Asian American who also related to it as well, right? Um, you know, I think thematically, like I said, this carries a lot on its weight, and maybe it, it doesn't necessarily execute on all of them. It kind of presents the idea and lets you think about it what it is um but you know i mean you know without getting too much into spoiler terry it talks about ideas of nihilism right like does anything like does everything if you if you have everything everywhere does any of it actually really matter right which i think would be an interesting allegory for social media right if you see everything all at once it kind of makes everything feel meaningless um there's a question of what ifs right it's you know myself like a 30 year, year old millennial is like oh what have i done this what have i had done right and, you know while i'm at peace at where i'm in the world now, there still is always that question, which I think this one definitely uh, explores to some degree. Um, and back to the Asian American stuff, you know, there's stuff with intergenerational trauma, which I think is, you know, not just between Evelyn and and her daughter, but also between Evelyn and her father, right? And kind of like what all, what all that is and processing that trauma. And, you know, I'm not personally queer, right? But obviously I have I have friends who are who have, who have spoken a lot about this, but even I could tell that, you know, that the, the tackling of the queer element, especially with combined with intergenerational trauma, combined with Asian Americanness and so on, and having a more nuanced take of it, it's like, Oh, it's like a com being proud of coming out story, but it's like this co very complex, nuanced relationship on like what it means. I'm not gonna try to speak to it too much because I can't. I don't have that experience, but I could see with that that this is a very personal story, especially for Daniel Kwan, one of the Daniels, um, in in coming that out. Um, but you know, aside from that, right? Again, the film is comedic it is zany it is you don't expect what's going to happen um it has all of these plot threads which you know maybe they don't don't get all wrapped up but you know you kind of get the gist of what happens right um you know this is just like a such a fun story and again it presents something it and, and i think it presents this idea of some of its themes it, it can it's a very narrow line where it could very go very cringy very um stereotypical and it doesn't really quite do that right it, it gets to a good message i guess um but without feeling preachy and without feeling you know cliche or, or cringe right um so yeah i mean everything everywhere all at once is a lot again like i said i think it deserves being seen on the big screen um I and mean, if you didn't know right in addition to doing swiss army man you know the daniels are known for doing the the turn down for what music video which kind of shows kind of their aesthetic right and, and kind of the crazy visuals that they have going on in here um you know some things definitely are definitely push the boundaries but i think are just you know I, the, my audience, right, which, which, you know, the theater I saw it in isn't usually a theater that laugh too much at stuff, but there was just some laughter going on at some lines and at some just crazy, bizarre moments, which I think it's just, it's an experience, I think, and, and it's a lot to take in, but I think it's, if you take it in, I think it's worth it. So overall, give it five everything bagels with everything on it out of five, and yeah, definitely a full-hearted recommendation for sure. Definitely going to be on my short list for films that I want to see, again, nominated for the Oscars, but even just on my list of top films for the year coming this December. Uh, and with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, Suit me ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zealand.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and just share it with a friend. Any of that will help. Uh, you know, uh, if you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon. Links to all of that will be in our show notes. Uh, numbers to use in the show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. His stuff as incompetent are from music.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on. Thank you.